Have you ever gone through a really hard time before? You ever gone through a really hard time before? Somebody like, yes, right now, okay? Um, There are some things that we're navigating societally together uh, through the pandemic, but there are some of you in this room, I'm telling you, it's painful at work, it's painful at home, it's painful in some relationships that you care for very deeply, it's painful with your family, and I'm telling you, uh, there's just a lot of pain surrounding your life right now. The, The image that I have in my head is like on the original Star Wars movie, which is actually episode four, all right? In the original Star Wars movie, do you remember when Luke is in the trash compactor? Do you remember that scene? He's in the trash compactor, and he's there, and the walls are closing in, all right? And to make matters worse, you got two other things going on in that scene. He's being, the walls are closing in, he's about to be crushed to death, but he's about to be crushed to death in a stormtrooper uniform on the Death Star. I mean, again, the worst place on the on, in the universe at that point. He's on the Death Star, he's being crushed to death and he's in the garbage right he's surrounded by garbage there's some weird snake thing swimming around underneath him right i mean all that all that weirdness to say i mean the situation is so brutal but to feel those walls closing in that's that feeling that we have when it's just it's a hard day you feel like there are these monuments to difficulty all around you if you're in one of those circumstances this is the message for you today i've been there myself I tried to think back to when there were just truly monuments all around me to difficulty that caused me just to have these spiritual battles I felt like happened all the time. And it happened right after I broke up with someone I dated for three and a half years when I was in college. Um, after we broke up, which I felt like, again, was the godly and right thing for both of us to do, um, when we parted ways, all of a sudden, the pain doesn't stop. If you've ever been with somebody uh, for a, an extended period of time, you know it's tough. And uh, every friend that we made, she and I met on the first day of school uh, when we moved to OSU, every friend we had was our friend. It wasn't my friends and her friends. We made all those friends together. So I'm telling you, any call from a friendship had about a big percentage that was them calling to check on me and then it still had a twinge of we want information so we can go check on our other friend as well there's nothing wrong with that it just made it for kind of weird conversations i've gotten her a job at my beloved red lobster and so i'm waiting tables She's working as a host, and so I've got to walk past her on my way into work during the day. We lived in the same apartment complex. I lived in the studio apartment on the front corner. She lived on the back corner, and so every time she left the complex, she drove past my apartment. Every time I'd turn around to drive through, I'd drive past her car, and I'm telling you, it was, again, like this monument that would send me down into the depths. I played lacrosse at OSU. And the first date that she went on after she and I broke up, about a month after we broke up, was with another guy on the lacrosse team, all right? Now listen, nothing wrong, she could do whatever she wanted, but that just hurt just a little bit. Seeing that guy that I played athletics with, and ultimately, just being honest with you, that was the reason I quit lacrosse. I just couldn't keep going. I couldn't keep watching and seeing that situation. I did the right thing. I was walking the path and doing the godly thing, but sometimes it feels like when you're at home, there's a monument to your failure and a reminder that you feel incomplete. All of a sudden, there was this monument at work. There was this monument, uh, again, uh, when I went to the lacrosse field or I went to the school campus or when I talked to a friend on the phone. There's a reminder today. We can, when we have those moments, allow that frustration to erupt into anger and then that anger, when it's full grown, grows into a beast called hate. 
where you can start to not just hate your situation that you have, but you can start to pinpoint all that hate on one specific person or one specific entity or one specific thing that you feel like is that pivot point of your frustration. I want to read you something here from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes this and it's very powerful. Here's what he says about the disciple. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, look at this, but not crushed. That's the trash compactor that Luke Skywalker's in. We're hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Why is this? Why does God allow us to go through this? Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Stop right there for just a minute. Paul says the mark of a disciple is not that you are blessed. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The mark of a disciple is that when trouble hits, you will endure. Even though we are pressed in on every side, even though we should be squashed in a pile of garbage, somehow, some way, the Spirit provides so that we are able to not be crushed. Even though we're perplexed. Even though it's complicated in this world that we live in. All of a sudden we find ways to find peace and we make our way through. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. He says again, we are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. And then he says the reason for it is because when the world looks at us, they go, how in the world did you survive that? Not look at how much stuff you have. Not look at how blessed you are. But the world looks at us and goes, how in the stinking world did you make it through all that trouble and you are still living, moving, and breathing? How in the world did you do that? And Paul says here, when we do that, Christ's life is revealed in our mortal body. We get to see the glory of heaven in the way that God helps us endure and persevere in the midst of great difficulty. No better movie example of that in my, in my mind than the original Rocky movie, all right? Remember the original Rocky? Now, just for the record, the original Rocky movie kind of stands alone in the canon, even though there's like 60 Rocky movies that are out now. Okay, that one stands alone in the canon. It was written to stand alone by Sylvester Stallone uh, in the beginning. He and his brother wrote the script together. In the original Rocky story, the goal was not that Rocky would win. Remember, Apollo Creed is the, uh, is the, uh, the Muhammad Ali character. He's the greatest in the world, and not just the greatest, but the greatest that's ever been. And so that's Apollo, not just because of his God-given talent, but because of his work ethic, because of the system that he's in. I mean, Apollo is supposed to be the absolute tip-top. Rocky, Rocky is struck down, but not destroyed. The goal of Rocky, if you remember, was not for him to win the fight. What was the goal of Rocky in Rocky 1? To go to distance, right? That's what you do, right, Sam? He's got to go to distance. That's what he wants to do in the original Rocky movie. His goal is he knows, I can't beat Apollo. I can't win against the greatest of all time in incredible shape. But maybe, just maybe, I can endure. Do you remember the way it ends? Rocky doesn't win in the original Rocky movie. 
He couldn't. Muhammad Ali's character, Apollo Creed, he's the best that's ever been. By points, he's going to win it. But all Rocky wants to do is take the hits, and then he wants to be able at the end of the day to say he took the greatest hits from the greatest player in the history of the sport, and he was able to make it through. I love the last scene. That really culminates the whole deal. Do you remember? After it's done, Apollo Creed, when the bell rings, they've been pummeling each other, but really it's just been Rocky taking hit after hit after hit. And you remember? Apollo leans over, grabs him, and he goes, hey, ain't going to be no rematch. Do you remember what Rocky says? Don't one. Do you remember? That's the way it ends. It's, again, it turns into this spectacle in Rocky 2 through 60, all right? But that first one is the picture of discipleship. It's what we do. The goal is that we would endure. And I'm telling you, the enemy looks at us and goes, man, ain't going to be no rematch. There's no way I put you in the circumstance to give God the glory again. And the disciple goes, good. I don't want it, right? I don't want to walk through a bed of nails in order to do this again unless the Lord calls me to do so. Ain't going to be no rematch? Good. I don't want one. It was brutal. It was difficult. I felt pressed on every side. And yet the Lord did not allow me to be crushed. I'm confused, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned. What a thing that we need to remember these days, isn't it? That when difficulty happens, the way that the believer in Jesus Christ responds to it determines how much glory God gets from that situation. We've got to navigate it in a godly manner. Instead of standing up and trying to act like we've been wronged so deeply. If you're taking notes, write this down. One of the marks of a true disciple is that they can navigate and withstand unimaginable hardship. Let me say that again. One of the marks of a true disciple is that they can navigate and withstand unimaginable hardship. We're pressed, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. When that happens, Christ is revealed. So it begs our big million dollar question today. How does a disciple navigate hardship? For some of you, you need to take notes because this is right where you are. I want to encourage you. Write it down on your little notes page or uh, you've got a place for notes on the back of your bulletins today. Write down information and I promise you, one of these three things that we're going to go through today might just might touch on the situation where you are. How does a disciple navigate hardship? Now flip over to Acts chapter 16 and we're going to start in verse 16. And we're going to read through verse 28 today. All right. Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 16. Little backstory for you, by the way. Uh, And if you want to write this in the flap of your Bible, you can. Acts 16, uh, starting in verse 16, is the first time that Paul will end up in prison. Of all the times, he would end up spending years in prison before all the time was said and done. But Acts 16 is the very first time that Paul spends time in prison. And that adds to the experience that we're about to go through today. He had no template for what that was going to look like and I guarantee you that stirred his fear to a little bit higher level. Look at Acts 16 and now let's look at verse 16. Keeping in mind the hardship that he's going to go through is going to end up escalating with the fear of being in prison for the very first time. It says verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer. Underline to the place of prayer. For those of you who were here last week, that place of prayer is the Riverside Prayer Meeting in Philippi uh, where Lydia and this group of women have gathered to found uh, the first Christian church in Philippi. This is where he's going. He's going to church at this miracle church. It says, We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. 
She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Underline, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled. One of the translations says bothered. He was so bothered that he turned around and look at this and said to the spirit. Please circle, highlight, and underline that little clause because it's incredibly important. He says, to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. Now stop right there for just a minute. Paul has come to this area. He's trying to plant this new church in Philippi. And then all of a sudden, he gets what we would call in our modern terms a troll. All right? The troll shows up. And she starts saying, these are servants of the Most High God. What she's saying is true, but it's being said in such a way that the truth is being offered up to discredit these guys, maybe because of her reputation, maybe because she's saying it sarcastically, maybe because she's shouting over Paul so that the message can't be heard. But whatever it is, she has started to troll them. Now, I want you to notice something. It bothers Paul so badly, but Paul doesn't turn his hatred, don't miss this, on the woman. It says he speaks what? To the spirit. The problem in our current culture is all of a sudden when we are frustrated with somebody because they're holding us up at work or they're holding us up in society or they're holding us up with what we dream this world could look like post-pandemic, guess what happens? Instead of realizing that there is a spiritual issue taking place here that requires a spiritual solution, instead we target that hate on that person and then from top to bottom, left to right, we find that it's okay to hate each other. It is never okay for the church of God to hate people. Amen? It is never okay for the church of God to hate people. We can be frustrated with sin and we can address sin itself. But it is wrong to the core for the sake of the gospel when we turn that hate on a specific individual. The desire of any believer, any disciple, is for all men and women to be saved. For them to come to a redeeming, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not for our opposition to be obliterated in front of us. There's a difference. And we forgot it as an American church at some point. And we treated it like it was okay to hate one another. It even comes out as hate the sin, love the sinner. You could view it this way. Deal with the sin. Deal with it. I know what the old timers were saying with hate the sin. The idea was we need to take a deep stand against it. But when a person becomes the object of that hate, it's the reason that we get caught up in this mess. When hardship hits, we deal with it the wrong way and we attach hatred to an individual. When the truth was we needed to deal with sin. He says to the spirit, this is a spiritual problem. If you're taking notes, how does a disciple navigate hardship? Number one, first and foremost, pray for your persecutors. Pray for your persecutors. Not that God would destroy them, but that God would save them. That they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You ever had trouble with somebody at work? And they make decisions that directly affect you. Sometimes it's a co-worker, and then sometimes it's a boss. And that boss's decisions affect you so deeply. And if it's a spiritual issue in nature, you come and you bring up a solution that is very rational, that is something that, again, is, is a good decision for the company, and they look at you and they still don't hear it. 
Does it ever benefit you to just go and try to rationalize with them over and over and over again? You feel like you're beating your head against a brick wall. Can I tell you why? Because the issue is spiritual in nature. You cannot make another human being be rational. Is that a good word? You cannot make another human being be rational. Do you know who can? God can. God can change someone's heart. If you're taking notes, write this down. Okay, you're ready? A troll's main issue is spiritual in nature, so seek a spiritual solution. Let me say that again. A troll's main issue is spiritual in nature. Seek a spiritual solution. I have no doubt in reading this passage that Paul, the reason it says that this woman kept this up for many days and Paul didn't just pray her away to begin with, didn't pray away the, the, the demon to begin with, is because he just wished the problem would go away. I can almost guarantee you that's why it takes multiple days here. The believer has to come to a point where you realize, rather than trying to rationalize and talk my way through something with another person, if I've spoken my peace and spoken the truth, then the goal is to then invite the Spirit to speak to them and to change them from the inside out. That's the way you navigate this. It also helps you do this. When you pray for your persecutors, it also helps you put some words to what you're feeling on the inside and maybe, listen to me, maybe there is just as much sin present in your heart as there is in the way that person is treating you. You can hear it this way sometimes. When you go, Lord, I just wish they'd go away. If you've prayed, Lord, I just wish they'd go away. That prayer has revealed just as much about your heart as it has about the person that you feel like has wronged you. The prayer is that they would come to repentance. The prayer is that God would provide in the circumstance so the gospel can go forward. It's not to pray, Lord, I just wish you would obliterate my enemies, that you would make my life easier. It's one of the reasons why when we teach prayer, we teach the ACTS method, A-C-T-S. Give you a little insight in the strand class. There are a lot of different ways to pray, but a very foundational way to pray is to teach that when you kneel down to talk and communicate with God, that you start with this method in this order. A for adoration. C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and then S for supplication. A lot of times what we do when we kneel down to pray is we're at a moment of desperation, and that supplication part is what we immediately go to, and we ask God for help. The truth is, we found with this Acts method, when we put ourselves in the proper mindset, then we are able to pray and ask to, to go before God and beg Him for things that are done in the proper mindset with us understanding that God is at work. So here's the reason why we do it that way. A, adoration. Adoration should be about 10% of your prayer time to kick off the whole experience. Adoration means that you remember who God is when you kneel down to pray. A lot of times the way I'll do that in my personal prayer time is I'll quote scripture to God to start, and that reminds me that I am kneeling at the throne of Almighty God, the creator of the universe, and that Jesus Christ is whispering prayers into the ears of the Father. It says in scripture, he's our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so I'll typically start off like this. Psalm 16, 8 through 10. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices and my whole being can remain secure for you. O God will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you allow your Holy one to even see decay. Father, I trust you. I believe in you. Lord, you are the God who will not abandon. You are the God that is at our right hand. And because of you, we will not be shaken. You are worthy of 
our trust, and I can rest secure in that. Do you see when you start a prayer off that way? All of a sudden, you've acknowledged that he is the God that can take care of your problem. After you've remembered who God is, the C stands for confession. You remember who God is, and then you remember who you are. One of the big problems preachers have. I'm a very compassionate guy, okay? Just, I'm not tooting my horn. I'm just saying very, very empathetic. When you share with me a struggle that you have, I carry it. I really, really do. I'm empathetic. It's just not all pastors are that way. It's just how I am. You share a struggle with me. It's why we'll do counseling, and I'll cry as much as you do because I just carry it with you. With confession, I've got to remember I can't save anybody. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And me carrying that burden with you doesn't mean I could ever, ever save you. Confession in that portion, and by the way, we usually tell our groups, 5% is what your confession, as far as your prayer time, 5% is what it should be. God knows what you did. You don't need to glory in it and wallow in it, all right? Share with the Lord what you've done. Confess the sin that you've committed, and then remember, He is God, and I am a sinner saved by grace. He is hearing my prayer, even though I've done nothing to deserve it. And then comes the most important part of your prayer time, the T, thanksgiving. Adoration, remembering who God is. Confession, remembering who you are. And thanksgiving is remembering what God has done. The fingerprints of God are all around us. In your prayer time, thanksgiving should be 75% of your prayer time. You know why? Because we need to remember that God is at work all around us in every life, in every situation, on every street corner, in every building, in every field. God is at work from the top of the heavens down to the core of the the earth. I'm telling you, from every molecule to the biggest stars, he is involved in every aspect of this universe. We've got to thank him for those things. And when we see his fingerprints, when we get to supplication, all of a sudden when you get to what you need, your mind understands God can do all things. Your mind understands you can do nothing on your own. And all of a sudden your mind understands God is at work and he will be at work. You see how you're in a different mindset than just offering up your Santa Claus list of what you'd like to see done? Lord, I'd really like my boss to get fired, make my life a whole lot easier. Do you see how that's a bit of a wicked prayer? That's a wicked prayer to pray. To pray that the Lord would reveal to their heart that they would be saved, that the Lord would reveal to their heart that there's struggle here, that he would show them what you've not been able to with your words. Those are godly prayers. To pray for their obliteration is not godly. Now look with me if you will. Some of you might say, but you don't know what they've done. I don't know what you've done either. All of it required Jesus Christ shed blood in order for you to be saved. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And let's look at verses 1 through 4. Paul writes this passage. This is so interesting. He's about to talk to us about spiritual warfare. And again, what's happening beneath the surface. But I love the first couple of verses because Paul is writing this from a place where he's been hurt. Where he's going through a time of hardship. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. It says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I, Paul, appeal to you. I, Paul, who look at this, am, quote, timid, underline, quote, timid, when face to face with you, but, quote, bold, went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the world's standards. Now, stop there for just a minute. Paul is revealing here that he's a little bit hurt because of some of the words that have been said about him. He says, I'm about to write to you, but you guys behind my back have said that when I'm with you, 
I'm timid, but when I'm away from you, I write with these big, bold words. And Paul says, that's hurt my feelings just a little bit. He goes, I hope I don't have to be as bold with you uh, because, again, you're making decisions that are godly. So look at what he does. Instead of getting mad at the people and focusing that hate, instead, look at verse 3. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Paul says here exactly what he's done in Acts chapter 16. He comes in and says, you as an individual have hurt me, but the sin is the problem. I don't hate you for saying those bad things about me, for doing those trolly things when it comes to my ministry and my life. He comes back and says, these are spiritual issues, and God has the power to demolish spiritual strongholds so that they go away forever. You have to find a way. If you hate someone, it is not okay. Amen? If you hate someone, it is not okay. Whether you're on the left, on the right, in the middle, or you're out in outer space somewhere, it is not okay to hate somebody. It's not a godly thing. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't deal with sin. Paul very powerfully deals with sin here. But to hate a person, we want people to be saved. That's what a church wants. That's what a disciple wants. It begs the question, have you prayed for God to change their heart? Have you prayed for God to change their heart? I want to encourage you to do so. Now flip back over to Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 25. So here's what happens next. It says the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone. And so they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to practice or to accept. Now stop right there for just a minute. Just before we can unpack all this, I want you to focus on this. We have slavery. We have racism and we have a wicked foreign government all right here in the same passage. This is a mess that a work of God has unearthed. And all of a sudden, Paul and Silas are in the middle of this mess. It's a picture here again that you can live godly and do the right thing when there's not a good foreign government or when there's not a good government in place, uh, when there's uh, when there's not a situation where, again, people are being fair or just with one another. It doesn't matter. Your being godly is not dependent on the situation that you're in. It's dependent on you following Christ and making the right decision. So look at what it says next. Verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. It says after they'd been severely flogged, underlined severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer who was commanded to guard them, he was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and he fastened their feet in the stocks. Stop right there for just a minute and picture this. They have been treated like the most violent of criminals for casting a demon out of a woman who was disrupting the Bible study by the riverside. All of a sudden, it's become this big cultural battle. And they take them, they severely beat them, and then after that, they go, these violent criminals, these disturbers of the peace, need to be put in the inner cell. But it's a work of Almighty God that they are in the middle of the room. You see, in an ancient dungeon, the closer you go in on the inside the easier it is to hear when the sound travels to the outside. The Lord has strategically placed them through misunderstanding in a place where the gospel can be heard the loudest. Look at what happens next in verse 25. Here's the power. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners, 
They were listening to them. You see, what the Lord has just done here has put them in a place where they can be heard, where the gospel can be heard the loudest. And Paul and Silas, instead of sulking over the bad day that they've had, instead, Paul and Silas, in the stocks, which most likely was hands, head, and feet, they could not be any more uncomfortable. They're in the stocks, in the inner cell, and Paul looks over and goes, you know, the prayer meeting got interrupted today. You want to go ahead and sing praise to God right now? Don't miss the power of that beautiful moment. He sits and goes, why don't we sing, Silas? Why don't we sing? First night Paul's ever been in prison that's recorded in Scripture, other than spring break 08. All right? No, I'm just kidding. All right? Here's the deal. He's in prison. He's in the stocks. And he goes, let's sing praise to God. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How does a disciple navigate hardship? Number one, pray for your persecutors. And number two, sing praise after a hard day. Sing praise after a hard day. There are some of you that will come up to me, and I really appreciate it. I know the heart behind it. You'll come up, and it's usually men. Men will come up, and they'll go, hey, pastor. And they'll puff me up, and they'll go, I really love the sermon. Really love the sermon. Love that it. it's motivational. It really pumps me up. I just don't get the whole singing thing. All right. In fact, some of you were so excited about the mask mandate because you could not sing and not feel guilty now. All right. There you go. Men and women alike. Listen to me. We're commanded in Scripture to sing praise to God. Do you know why? It's not because God needs our praise to fill some meter. You ever watch Peter Pan when they're like, clap, I believe in fairies, right? They need our claps or else the fairies are all going to die, right? That's not God. God doesn't need a certain amount of praises to be sung to him in order for him to operate at full capacity. Listen to me. You are speaking timeless truth with your own mouth. And the melody is the reminder of that timeless truth. Be similar for you to study scripture and to memorize it. The melody is the sugar that helps the medicine go down. It's the reminder on those dark days so that when we sing a song like we did, How Great Thou Art, that song has been providing hope on dark days for hundreds of years. And you got to take part in it and sing it today. Those words that are memorized, those words that are sung to Almighty God on a hard day, those are the days where timeless truth is remembered. Listen, from your own mouth. If you're taking notes, write this down. Timeless truth is the medicine and the melody is the sugar. Timeless truth is the medicine and the melody is the sugar. Like Mary Poppins said, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Paul and Silas are in the stocks. They're uncomfortable. They've been severely flogged. They've been wrongfully imprisoned. They've been treated like violent criminals when all they did was cast out a demon. And Paul goes, let's worship. Let's sing praise to God. If we can't have the worship by the riverside, let's do the worship right here in the inner cell. So one of the things that I'll do over the years, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like I said, I get real empathetic. If you're that way, you probably have this problem. I'll come home after a long day at work, after taking care of people, trying to point them to the gospel. And I'm the type of person I like to drive straight home, try to make good time, not speeding, but try to make good time so that I can spend as much time with my family as possible. The problem with that is sometimes I'm making good time but my head and my heart are not quite right from the day. 
And I kept finding myself going through the door, and I was not as nice to my wife and kids as I knew I needed to be. And in a lot of cases, it was more just I wasn't there yet. My brain was still at work. My brain was still answering emails, even though I wasn't typing on my phone or typing on my computer. My brain was somewhere else. And what I kept finding was this. I kept going home on certain days, and I'd be so gone, it wasn't any good for my family. In fact, it was a detriment. So I found a 28-minute drive. Okay, I call it the loop. It has to do with I-295 and the Richmond Highway, Highway 1. We live over in National Harbor. I can make my little 28-minute loop at all different times of day, no matter the traffic. It's kind of a weird little pattern, but I can make my little loop. And in that 28 minutes, I've created something that I call my soul medicine playlist, all right? Soul Medicine Playlist is a list of worship songs that are truly a cry of my heart. Different stuff rotates on and off of that playlist, but the goal is that if I'm having one of those days where I can sense that I'm not in the right headspace to plug in and be there for my family, I can stop and I sing praise to God, and I'm one of those weirdos that sings no matter who's looking around while I'm driving. I want to encourage you. Some of you say, Zach, I wish I had a car. I could do that. You can do it on Subway. Cost you two bucks to spend that time in worship. Hop on the subway, make the loop. Now you might look a little strange screaming on there, but I've seen way weirder stuff on that subway. <laughs> For some of you, it's a walk to the park. For some of you, it's on the back. I've watched some of you do this. It's on the back side of the Lincoln Memorial where you look out and you've got the big pillars. It's almost like a little cubicle that you've got, little cubicles there where you can look out at Arlington Cemetery. You can cry out in praise right there at the back and nobody's going to hear you or listen to you. There's something beautiful about crying out to Almighty God and remembering from your own mouth that He will take care of it. That He is able and He is strong in the midst of our difficulty. He is there to take care of us. It begs the question, do you have a timeless truth playlist? And then are you too good to sing? Let me ask that again. Do you have a timeless truth playlist? And then are you too good to sing? There's some of you that even though we sang in worship today, you will need to, as soon as we leave this place, you get out and you find a place to sing praise to God again, not out of legalism, but because you're not quite there yet. There's something in your heart that you need to unburden and you need to remember God can take care of it. He is the one that we can go to with all our needs. Spiritual problems in nature, in nature, a spiritual problem requires a spiritual solution. Now let's look at the last part and we'll call it a day. These last verses, by the way, are a little bit complicated, so don't miss this. It says, suddenly, after they're singing, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. So the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now stop right there for just a minute. Paul, in the beginning, is tempted to hate the woman that is stirring up trouble in the midst of the prayer meeting. But instead, he keeps his focus on the sin and is still compassionate for the woman that is causing the problem. It's the sin that's the root. Then, after being severely flogged, after being put in the stocks, wrongfully imprisoned, 
imprisoned, he still takes the moment, he and Silas, to call out and to sing praise to God, even in the midst of difficulty and hardship. And now all of a sudden, we get the final test for the disciple. The test is, when the miracle happens, and the ground is shaken, and the chains fall off, and the stocks fall off, and the prison doors swing open. I don't know about you, but if I was wrongfully imprisoned at that point, the first thing that would have come to my mind is, act to God, I'm out of here. I'm going. But Paul has the presence of mind to understand that if he leaves, it's an eye for an eye culture. The law is eye for an eye, life for a life. And if even one person leaves that prison cell, then the jailer is going to be held accountable. And he, and most likely, in some cases, his family will be executed because of the prisoners that have escaped. Now listen to me. Because the earthquake has happened, and because the prisoners had been listening to the worship service of Paul and Silas, all the prisoners' chains come loose. But Paul speaks for everybody, not just for he and Silas, but for every prisoner when he stands up and says, Hey, we ain't going nowhere, right? Everybody's staying put. This man's life's at stake, and we're not moving. He doesn't do that for he and Silas. He does that for the name of Jesus Christ. He does that so that the message can still be heard. He still maintains integrity that he believes that God is the one who's in charge above all things. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How does a disciple navigate hardship? Number one, pray for your persecutors. Number two, sing praise after a hard day. And number three, avoid justifying selfishness. Avoid justifying selfishness. Sometimes one of the things that we do is we can sit there and we can go, Lord, I've been through such a hard time. I've been trying to do it the right way. I've got such a difficult boss. I've got such a difficult family situation. I've got tough, difficult, I've got difficult city restrictions. I've got all these things on my plate, Lord, and I've done so good. And so I feel like you've really just opened a door for me to jump into this sin. God never has in his plan that you would sin. Never, ever, ever is there a point where God goes, yeah, you know, go ahead. Christ died for sin, not so we could sin. And sometimes some of the best people I know will walk that razor thin line. And then all of a sudden there's one little thing that you go, I know it's wrong, but I deserve it. I've done so good. I deserve a moment to do this thing. Paul doesn't fall into that. He doesn't allow his selfishness to sully the gospel message. Best movie example I can give you that, by the way, is a kid's movie. Did you ever see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Remember Willy Wonka? That whole movie, beautiful picture. And Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, before all the kids go to the, uh, uh, to the, uh, the factory. You remember, there's a dude that meets up with them from one of the other rival candy companies. What's his name? Slugworth. There we go. Slugworth. Slugworth. You remember? He goes to Slugworth, or Slugworth comes up to the kids and holds up the everlasting gobstopper. He goes, you're about to get the everlasting gobstopper. He goes, here's the deal. Only one person's going to get control of the chocolate factory. If you end up one of the other five that doesn't win, if you end up and it's unfair for you, then I'll tell you what. You bring me that gobstopper, and we'll make sure you get paid, even though uh, you didn't, even though it's wrong. Uh, they 
they really wronged you to not allow you to be the one who controls the factory. And do you remember what happens? They go through each one of the kids. One of them drinks a, a bottle and ends up floating up and nearly gets chopped up in the ceiling fan, right? That one girl takes that pill and ends up a blueberry. I mean, there's all this trouble and turmoil and hardship that they go through. And then what happens? They all kind of look at each other at the end and go, well, I may not have gotten the factory, but I'm going to get paid from this gobstopper. I mean, that's what we do. We sit there as believers and we go, Lord, I've walked the line. I've endured hardship. And you know what? I deserve to get to do this thing that I know is in no way a part of your plan. Paul says, I'm using my moment. I'm using my integrity to claim right here in this moment. We're all here and we're not going anywhere because it's the right thing to do. God may have done the miracle, but it was not so that we could sin. If you're taking notes, write this down. A disciple desires for their persecutors to be redeemed over being obliterated. Disciple desires for their persecutors to be redeemed over being obliterated. That selfishness creeps in and we think, I've gone through so much. I've gone through so much difficulty. If it doesn't just all go away in an instant, then I deserve to get to do this thing that I know is wrong. And the cost is our integrity. We'll close with this. The cost is our integrity. My family is hooked on a little YouTube show called Mr. Beast. You'll see Mr. Beast before. Um, Denver got us hooked on it. It's this kid out of North Carolina, and uh, he and his friends give away a whole bunch of money and stuff to strangers. And so it's just a, it's a true YouTube kids deal, YouTube you know, teenager deal uh, that you watch. And so at some point, my degree sociology, there is some of it that is a beautiful social experiment because you get to see when people have money thrown at them, how they behave and what they do. And so last week, there was an episode where there was a girl in her mid-twenties, woman in her mid-twenties, and this woman had behind her, Mr. Beast had set up, he got $20,000 in $1 bills, all stacked up on this table so that they can see this big pile of money. And with the big pile of money, Mr. Beast looks over and he's got two signs. One says steal and one says uh, a share uh, or split, steal and split that are down there in front. And he looks at this girl and he says, uh, so here's the deal, $20,000. He said, you have a choice. He said, you can either steal and take all the money for yourself, or you can split the money, $10,000 each, between you and someone you've never met who is sitting off site in another room. And without skipping a beat, she goes, steal. I'll take it. He goes, uh, and she goes, is there a catch? He goes, no catch. He goes, except that there's a guy in the other room that is going to not have any money. And she goes, oh, then I'll take it. Steal, I'll take it. She goes, I don't ever have to meet him? He was like, no. And she goes, I'll take it. And she starts filling up the bag. Well, at that point, you see him and he's like, I don't know what to say. I don't, I mean, again, this guy's done tons of videos. And all of a sudden he's like, I don't know what to say. And they show pictures of the guy in the other room sitting there. And he has no clue that he's just had this until the video comes out that has more than 10 million views on it, where they get to see this woman again in her credit, her, her character just being completely disparaged. And so it ends with her looking at the camera and she goes, I didn't know. I'm sorry. And Mr. Beast looks over and he goes, no, you did know you in fact knew. I told you, and you've chosen to do this. And then they flash and they go to another video. Now, here's the deal. That's integrity. And for believers in Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, 20 grand looks like a whole lot of money behind us. But the price of your integrity, the price of your witness is so much more valuable. And we've got to come to a point as believers 
We don't justify taking it because you were the one who asked me if I should take the money or not. We all go through those moments and we need to make sure that we keep our eyes on the cross, keep our eyes on Jesus. And just because we've been going through a hard time doesn't mean we can justify doing wicked, wicked things. It begs the final question. Are you allowing your difficult situation to justify selfish behavior? Are you allowing your difficult situation to justify selfish behavior? There is never a case where it would be okay to cheat on your spouse. There is never a case where it would be okay to steal from your employer. There is never a case where the Lord would have opened up a situation for you to do wrong by someone in your community. I know that sounds so simple, and yet hardship stirs us up into this weird, selfish flow. There's never a time when it's okay or justified to look at pornography. There's never a time when it's okay or justifiable to put a substance into your body that makes you drunk. Now listen, Scripture talks about drunkenness. I want to encourage you, don't justify sinful behavior just because you're going through a hard time. Is that a good word? We've got to come to the point where we understand that. And when we do, that's when we get to Acts 16, verse 30 and 31. That's when the gospel breaks loose. Let's bow our heads for prayer.